Have you ever walked past a dumpster and been like, yo, I wonder what's in that dumpster? I can put on these glasses. Let's start eating that trash can. <laughs> Four people, including a couple and their six-year-old daughter, appear to have vanished off the face of the planet. They were last seen in Western Australia six years ago. Theories about their disappearance range from the sinister to the bizarre. You're listening to the True Crime Dumpster Podcast with hosts Amy and... And I am Kevin. And we're coming back at you this week with episode 69, The Disappearance of Chantel and Leela McDougal, Tony Popich, and Gary Felton. 69, dude. Yeah. And I had this, to say it. <laughs> this, this is a listener request from a long time ago, and it's taken us a while to get to it because I wanted to do it justice because this is one of our first like total stranger... We don't know this person, listener. Stranger danger. (laughs) (laughs) But she's our friend now because we've exchanged some emails back and forth. I I would have liked to interview her for this episode, but she is coming to us from Australia. All the way down under. And we don't even know. If she's a real person. (laughs) No, I just meant like with our, the schedule with our kid, like we can't, we can't set things up. (laughs) Yeah. Logistics are too crazy. Yeah. She doesn't know what time is yet so yeah she's not very Abigail respectful ru- rules in that this manner. roost for sure but we just want to say thank you to Katrina for giving us this case and it's a crazy one so we'll get into it right now Chantel McDougall was born on June 5th 1980 in Melbourne 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 they don't is, is Mel we would say Melbourne we'd probably say Melbourne 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 e at the end too I know, but they they love saying things really like Melbourne, Melbourne. They don't have much time, so they <laughs> they speed things up there. We have lots of time. She was close with her family and enjoyed gymnastics, swimming, brownies, netball, and acting. Can you explain what netball might be? <laughs> I'm assuming it's tennis, badminton, falls anything, with anything, nets. Anything with a yeah, net? Yeah, like okay. volleyball. <laughs> Butterfly catching? She just loved all... Ball net activities. Okay. In ni- I, I'm assuming it's a s- specific sport in Australia. Maybe like basketball? Oh, that's a net too. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Oh, I guess soccer has a net too. Oh, Football doesn't. This doesn't narrow it down at yeah. all. Football's the only one that doesn't. And boxing. Yeah. Anyways, Chantel visited an ashram in Melbourne. I'm going to say Melbourne. I can't. No, that's how you say it. Yeah. Melbourne. See, it doesn't sound right. You're not from there. I know. I'm sorry, Australian listeners. I know. And met... Okay. So in 1997, Chantel visited an ashram in Melbourne and met and began a relationship with a man named Simon Cookerman. So this is going to get a little confusing because 
at the top of the episode, I said Gary Felton. And that's going to come into play later. It's not actually Gary Feldman? No. <laughs> but so I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to talk about Simon Cookerman. And he's going to come in a few times. I'm going to refer to him as Cookerman. Because there's another Simon. Oh, geez. And he's the Simon throughout. So Simon's Simon, but Simon's actually Gary. Okay, see, this is already oh, getting wow. complicated. Just, just work with me here. This is Simon Cookerman. This is Chantel's boyfriend. In 1997 or 98, Chantel and Cookerman went to a spiritual seminar in Melbourne where they met Simon Cadwell, who was presenting the seminar. See, there's the other Simon. How, how many Simons are we up to at this point? We're just, there's two Simons. Only two. And one of the Simons is not actually a Simon, but he's I'm going to refer, Simon. he's a fake Simon. Holy shit. So there's kind of a third Simon. We'll talk about him later. How many Simons are in Melbourne? Simon says, shh. Okay. <laughs> okay. So Simon Cookerman, Chantel, they eventually move in with the Simon Cadwell and his partner, Deborah Fleischer. In Victoria, where Chantel nannied their son. So, Deborah Fleischer, who I'm going to refer to as Deborah. I like going by first name. I think it's a little easier sometimes. So Unless it's Simon. So, Simon... <laughs> yeah, I that. So, Simon Cadwell and Deborah, they have a kid together. Chantel and her boyfriend, Simon Cookerman, who I'm referring to as Cookerman, they move in. <laughs> she nannies for them, Okay. Okay. Shortly after beginning her nanny gig, Chantel and Deborah, they go to Perth to a conference and they meet a woman named Justine Smith. It get it's it's like a it's like a soap opera here at the beginning, okay? There's a lot of people and a lot of fucking, all right? This is my kind of story. <laughs> so, Deborah gives Justine a copy of Simon's book, and I'm going to talk about that in depth later. The book is called Servers of the Divine Plan. <laughs> is it about his women? Not, no. <laughs> so Justine found the book compelling. So she begins corresponding with Simon Cadwell, who I'm just going to refer to as Simon from here on out. Okay. She's, she starts talking with Simon Cadwell through email. In 1999, Deborah separated from Simon. So Deborah was his first boo. I don't know. Baby mama. Okay. Deborah separates from Simon. Simon moves back to England. And that's when Justine, so this new follower of his, she goes to be with Simon and starts a relationship with him in England. So, yeah. Okay. So, do we get to the reason why he went to England? He's from England. Right. But do we get to why he went back to England? Do you know why? Yes. Oh, what? So, this book he wrote. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Go for it. Turns out that it was plagiarized from different writers. Yeah. It was just like a conglomeration of other spiritual books. And he got called out and his publishers wanted their money back. Uh-huh. And, he, you know, he said so that's why he bounced to England. He was escaping this... It, yeah, and also he had some stuff in his past too. So it's he seems to kind of bounce around when things kind of fit his need. In terms, I would say like criminals do. Yeah. Ba ba ba. So, 
Chantel, Deborah, and Deborah's son that she has with Simon, they stay behind in a place called, oh, I didn't, I didn't look up how to say this, Floriat. But knowing Australians, they would say like, Floriat. They would say, yeah, you can't. <laughs> I'm going to say Floriat for, I know it's probably not right. Florit. Florit. Feel free to send us Florit. emails at truecrimedumpster.com. No, 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 don't. <laughs> so he's, they stay behind in Florit, Australia. It was also around this time that Chantel ended her relationship with Cookerman, that other Simon dude. In November of 1999, Chantel went to England to meet up with Simon. She returned to Perth and arranged for Simon to obtain a visa to come back to Australia. He came back with Justine, and they all moved into a house together. Like, everybody. What's weird is, like, I hadn't heard anything else. So he gets he moves back to Perth, to Australia. Yeah. And publishers were like, oh, it's cool. I guess, like, <laughs> I he know. stayed away long Maybe enough. Maybe he's under the radar. I, I guess he, Yeah, I guess he stayed away long enough to just kind of be under the radar. And they just didn't think he was coming back. But at this point, you'll see he becomes a gnarly shut-in. Like... He seemed to maybe be out and about and be a little more public about his stuff, I guess. But then I guess like the, this time coming back from England, he's way more of a shut in, it seems like. Well, he also, I don't want to get in f- ahead of ourselves, but he also has forged documents. And so I think he doesn't want to draw attention to himself because... Yeah, and that's why I was saying that that Simon Cadwell, even though he's a Simon, there's actually kind of a third Simon. It's the real Simon Cadwell, Uh, and we'll get to that. Is he the one from American Idol? (laughs) I know, that's that's Simon... Caldwell or something? Yeah, Caldwell, I think. Cowell? Cowell. Cowell, okay. Chantel became pregnant with her and Simon's daughter, Leela, in 2000. Leela was born in September of 2001. Justine left the house in 2002. So at this point, everybody's pretty much left except for Chantel. In 2003, the couple and young Leela moved to Denmark for a bit. A little before this time and also during this time, there's this dude named Tony Popich that kind of just starts hanging out with them a lot. And he's kind of one of the followers of Simon. And he actually moves with them to Denmark, but like they're there for like months and they end up moving back to Australia. And according to one of Chantel's friends, they left because of the bad vibes from so many Aboriginal people being massacred in Denmark. That's what he, that's what Simon said, apparently. Aboriginal meaning native? I'm assuming, yes. But what's weird is that people in Denmark though. Yeah, but you would. There's that happened in Australia too. It happens everywhere. It happens everywhere. It's called human history. I know. I, he. I think he just says things that are convenient at the moment or like confusing, so that people are just like, "Uh, sure, dude, whatever, whatever you say." He should get a job in politics. <laughs> at the end of 2003, Simon, Chantel, Leela, and Tony moved into a farm house in the remote town of Nanup. And I know I've said that right because I've heard that town name a lot. And it's spelled N-A-N-N-U-P. It's not that hard to say. You're an English teacher. <laughs> Which means nothing for pronouncing Australian town names. They're in English. 
Nanup is a town in the southwest region of Western Australia, about 174 miles south of Perth on the Blackwood River. Nanup has a population of 587 in 2011. Their population nearly doubled by the next census in 2016, with 936 residents calling this small town home. And they're all named Simon. <laughs> The Rural Beauty. That's hard to say. I'm glad you didn't make me say that. <laughs> the Rural Beauty of this town is probably what attracted Simon to this place. That, and it would be easier to live an alternative lifestyle without the peering eyes of them city folk. True. According to our Aussie listener friend Katrina, who recommended this case, like we said, um, I wanted to use some of her um, Aussie slang um, Oi. <laughs> so she said, Simon was a whack job from England who went gallivanting around the globe on an I am God adventure collecting followers. Dude was tapped as in hammer to bubble wrap tapped. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what the last part is, but the first part sounds like me on tour. <laughs> Simon was unemployed, working on his bullshit plagiarize spiritual publications and constantly online preaching and speaking to his upwards of 50 followers and that's i think being very generous according to chantelle's friends simon was an influential control freak chantelle always walked behind him he had some wacky ideas about spirituality and let me tell you about them which i will <laughs> oh, and his name was actually Gary Felton, an identity he stole from 15 years earlier from a colleague, but we'll kind of, we don't actually find that out until way later, so that's why I'm not going to refer to him as Gary. Sorry. We don't, yeah. Fake he, Gary. <laughs> sorry, real Simon. Real Simon, fake Gary. <laughs> <laughs> According to the 2017 Coronial Inquest which we are going to use as one of our primary sources. Between 1996 and 2000, Simon published books devoted to his spiritual or philosophical beliefs, notably The New Call, Servers of the Divine Plan, and Rare Insights. He created a website called The Truth Fellowship as well as several online chat forums in which he discussed his beliefs and encouraged others to follow them. You can easily find two of his books online, although I would not recommend it. And the service of the divine plan came through what he called a quote-unquote remembering process, which propelled this book <laughs> into existence in 1999. Yeah, he so remembered he, the he, stuff he, he read. He remembered other books, yeah. exactly. I just, I love that. He, it's like, he, I didn't say that I wrote it. It just propelled out of me and onto the page. That's such bullshit. Yeah. It is such bullshit. According to the 2017 Coronial Inquest, the investigator Barry Paul King briefly skimmed over Simon's books, Servers of the Divine Plan and the New Call. He said, He does not pretend to understand or appreciate fully the spiritual views within them. I recognize elements of Christianity and Buddhism, including Zen Buddhism, but, are, but there are also quotations from Tolstoy and Thoreau cited. From what I saw, the overriding message was a need to lose the ego and to devote oneself to the enlightenment of humanity through a sort of universal love. The language used, especially in the new call, is grandiose and replete 
with hyperbole and unsupported assertions, some of which appeared bizarre to me. I think that's pretty much what all New Age... Yeah, it's a lot of like mumbo jumbo is. bullshit where it's like a fusion of a lot of other stuff that's already been written. Pretty much, don't be a dick. Yeah. There you go. The class is over. So both books are listed with anonymous as the author. Why, you ask? The author wishes to remain anonymous. The anonymity of authorship helps the reader focus on the content of the book, the purpose of which is to aid the remembrance of one's person of one's sole purpose. I think it's because he stole the identity of somebody else and if he published it and it got big, that dude would probably complain and get royalties or something. So in the coronial inquest, there was somebody else named Dr. Geeson that King Dude talked to, and they provided a report in which they described Simon's beliefs as she understood them from reading some of his emails and writings and related blogs from other writers as follows. So this is kind of wordy, but this is basically I what one of the reasons I'm including it is that it's a summary of what he believes said in a pretty succinct way. In brief, the main premise of his belief is that some supposedly selfless few are moving from what is our three dimensional physical plane known as the Piscean era to a five dimensional vibrating plane known as the Aquarian age. Through what is known as the ascension process, this ascension process is achieved through death. Although apparently it doesn't feel like dying, more like going to sleep. The few who enter this five dimensional plane are considered to pass through a purification process and ascend into vibrating energies of varying frequencies. It's so weirdly specific. Like how, how, okay. Anyway, how does he know? Yeah. How do you know this? Drugs, that's how. (laughs) When a sufficient frequency is reached, one that matches that of the fifth dimension, a new level of reality emerges for the individual, one where a consciousness of love, compassion, peace, and spiritual wisdom prevails. This supposed transformation only happens to those who have learned to relinquish personal desires and material possessions for a greater collective good and are therefore considered to be superior to those left behind. Further, this new level of consciousness is apparently extraterrestrial in entity and capable of interplanetary travel. So is that like astral projection or something? Uh, no, he's just talking about aliens that can go from so planet to he's planet. So say, he's saying that we're aliens? Uh, I don't think he's saying that we are aliens necessarily. But the new level of consciousness for those woke folks makes makes them aliens. They would be five dimensional, so I think they would be more more human than human at that point. <laughs> <laughs> so for those... well, because you have to you have to die to get out of the third oh, dimension, okay. right? So. I don't know. This is too hard for me to follow. For So for those few who are ready for the ascension process and essentially waiting, they find living on Earth as being toxic and polluted and that there is nothing le- left but murder, hatred, and putrefaction. They believe that we are heading towards the Armageddon, a judgment day, the end of the world, believed to be on December 21st, 2012. Well, guess what? That already uh, we happened. We missed the bus. Yeah. 
This apocalyptical philosophy is based on the premise that all quote unquote good people get to go home, which is the fifth dimension, whereas all the sinners and failures are subjugated to reincarnation again for more suffering by staying in the third dimension, our world. They call this dimension the prison planet. Servers of the Divine Plan has quite the range of reviews online for it. People either think it's brilliant or utter horseshit. <laughs> As for the new call, the two deluded and brave folks that read it both gave it five stars on Amazon. One of the reviewers writes, absolutely amazingly accurate portrayal of the pandemic we are presently experiencing and how to deal with it. Maybe we should read it. Ascend, I think, is what he's saying. So enough about this double-tapped hammer bubble wrap twat. We just wanted to give you a taste of his crazy so that you can get the context. In Nanup, Chantel kept the family afloat. In her early 20s, she was a swim instructor, seamstress, and also sold makeup. Apparently, she also worked at the local fish and ship shop and hotel. A real go-getter. I know. She was also the primary caretaker of Leela. I have no idea how she... Oh, and she also... Uh, she raised chicken and sold the excess eggs. Like, she literally did it all. Basically, she had a million jobs so that Simon didn't have to have any. Tony Popich, the roommate, worked at a local hardware store and resided with them intermittently in a caravan behind their house. He was well-liked in his community and by his co-workers. Both Chantel and Tony appeared to follow Simon's self-styled spiritual beliefs. While Chantel, Leela, and Tony are all well-liked and well-integrated in their small community, Simon is not. He didn't even leave his computer screen or his house. In May of 2006, Simon, Chantel, and Tony began telling family and friends that they intended to move to Brazil. However, it seems like it became more official that they were potentially leaving in April of 2007. The suggestion by Simon that he might move to Brazil likely started from an idea which members of his online group, especially Cheryl, and she's got a last name that's hard to say, so I'm just going to say Cheryl, presented to him. Cheryl told police investigators that she was unsuccessful in talking Simon into going to Brazil. He rejected the idea and held to a spiritual hopelessness that was consuming him, also telling her that he would be physically incapable of making the trip without months of therapy first. One of the reasons they likely wanted to leave was because Mr. and Mrs. Crouch, the landlords, had subdivided the property and arranged for Western Power to install a new transformer that was to be connected to the house. The transformer was about 90 meters from the house. In April of 2007, Bruce Blackburn, an electrical contractor who lived near the property, was digging a trench and laying cable from the transformer to the house when Simon came out of the house and complained about the electromagnetic field given off by the transformer and how it was making him sick. Blackburn let him know that the EMF from appliances on the house was greater than that given off by the transformer. This agitated Simon. He told Blackburn that he wanted to pack up and move away. He mentioned going to Brazil as a, as a third world country where he could get away from it. 
The second possible reason that they may have wanted to move away to Brazil was because of Chantel's ex, the other Simon, Simon Cookerman. He came to the house and nan up twice. Chantel called the cops on him twice. They advised her to get a violence restraining order, a VRO, against Cookerman if he kept bothering her. Eventually, the cops took Cookerman to be psychiatrically assessed. On the way to Bunbury, Cookerman told Constable Taylor that the group was a part of a cult and that Simon, who was the leader of the cult, was a fake and that his real name was Gary Felton. Man, if the cops had just taken this dude seriously, this could have stopped right here. Lots of our stories have that (laughs) somewhere in there. Yeah. I mean, they did kind of take him seriously. They did look into it. And the thing is, Simon Cadwell didn't have any bad things in his name you know what i mean and then oh no no no. like and they looked up gary felton i think that was clean too they're just like yeah this dude isn't connected to anything really towards the end of may 2007 chantelle's parents came to visit leela's passport came in the mail while they were visiting mr and mrs mcdougall asked chantelle if she was planning to go anywhere and at that point she said that they weren't Simon snatched away the passport and ran up the stairs to put it away. That's normal. Yeah. Also, what's not normal is that any time that the parents wanted to, like, take a picture at all, like a family picture or any picture at all, he'd flip out and be like, absolutely not. Don't steal my soul. Yeah. That's what he said. He thought that the <laughs> oh, camera would steal his soul. That's that's what he Maybe told. Maybe he's from the past. <laughs> that's what he told them. He also said that he was from a different planet and stuff. And he asked, like, like deadpan, he asked her parents, what planet are you from? And it, and, and it, well, he wasn't trying to be funny. He, he genuinely thought that, like, different people were from different planets or something. Men are from Mars. Yeah, apparently. So, <laughs> yeah. So the, all the pictures that they snapped of especially their granddaughter were like very incognito like they would pretend they would just have like the camera on the table and they quickly snap them when like simon's back was turned and stuff but the few pictures that they that exist of this simon gary guy right it it are kind of like ethereal no they're they're pictures that he just wasn't aware that were being taken of him candid that's the word i was looking for yeah they're very candid photos of him like stretching and stuff like that During May 2007, Simon told Cheryl by email that the group in Nanup had a plan for for a family suicide with a quick-acting drug. The plan was for the four of them to wander into a wilderness area where he, Chantel, and Leela would take the drug and Tony would bury them. Tony would then wander further into the wilderness and take the drug where no one would find his body. Simon told her that he thought that Chantel could not do it because she kept delaying. She told him that it would be murder to kill Leela, and after that, Simon was no longer as open with her. Cheryl said that she and others in the online chat group tried to convince Simon to move to another location away from the EMF, but he refused their advice. A lot of stuff goes down in the Truth Fellowship chat group during this time. Basically, Simon is super depressed and saying weird shit to his people slash followers online. He is allegedly taking antipsychotic drugs during this time as well. Rather than a suicide family thing, he said he would just kill himself. Too bad he didn't stick to that plan. 
Cheryl did not hear from him again after this. Eventually, a member of the group would contact Chantel and ask her if Simon had committed suicide, to which her reply was, quote, Oh, is that what they said? She confirmed that he had not. Yeah, and everyone thought that was such a weird, like, that's a weird thing for someone to, you ask, like, hey, did your husband or partner commit suicide? Oh, did he say that? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's a weird response. And he hadn't, obviously, at this point. And we don't, and he maybe never did. In June and July of 2007, a lot of stuff goes on with the selling. I, I, I like the coronial inquest. This is like several pages of. So they had these like two dachshunds, and the dachshunds had puppies, and they're really cute, and they sold them. But it's like two pages of like all the different stuff about selling the dogs. Obviously, I don't want to go into. Sounds like a fascinating read. Yeah. And also there was a like everybody sold their cars. So uh, sold all the puppies, sold all the cars, withdrew money, deposited money, withdrew money, deposited money, withdrew money, deposited money, but mostly deposited. It was it's very, very complicated. Tony flashes a dick to an undercover police officer. That happens during that time, too. Wow. Uh, he's yeah how divine <laughs> and then Chantel gives away her chickens which are like her pride and joy so there's a lot of giving away of things that's a red flag yeah but it's also like what you do when you move to another country I suppose it would be yeah like I said shit seems weird can't take your chickens to Denmark or to Brazil no chickens allowed between June 14th 2007 and and July 14th, 2007, Chantel spoke to her parents by phone. On June 24th, 2007, Chantel told her mother that she and her family were moving in about six weeks' time to a community on the outskirts of Rio Branco in Brazil. In early July, Chantel called her parents and told her mother that she was still not sure what her address would be in Brazil. She said that she was still packing and that they would make arrangements to send their things to Brazil by boat. She said that Simon had already left and that she and Leela were going to follow by plane. Tony was going to travel around a bit and then go to Brazil on his own. On July 10th or 11th, 2007, Tony went to see his parents in Manjimup to say goodbye to them. He said that Simon was going to spend a few days in Perth and then go to Brazil. Simon would make sure everything was all right in Brazil and then send Chantel and Leela there as well. On July 12, 2007, several things of significance occurred. Lots of phone calls. And an unidentified person went to the Manjimup Visitor Center and bought a ticket for an adult passenger with the name J. Roberts traveling from Bridgetown to Northcliffe on July 15th, 2007. The telephone number provided on the booking record was the landline at the property. Tony pleaded guilty to his charges and paid a $300 fine. So he, what was the deal there? So he pleaded guilty to this charge. Yeah, the flashing his dick to the cop. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then the booking of the ticket, that is a whole other thing that we'll get into in a little bit. Okay. So on July 13th, Chantel, Leela, and Tony sold Chantel's car for $4,000 and told the dealer they were moving to Brazil. 
On the same day, they went to a pet shop in Bustleton, where she sold three of their puppies for a total of $975. Before they left the pet shop, Leela played with the puppies and was upset that she had to say goodbye to them. Tony went to the courthouse to arrange for an enduring power of attorney, appointing his brother Joseph to manage his affairs. He mailed the document to Joseph. Also on the 13th of July, 2007, a ticket was purchased with cash at the East Perth train station for a return journey from East Perth to Kalgoorlie on the morning of the 16th of July, 2007. The ticket was for a passenger named Jay Roberts. On the 14th, oh gosh, there's a lot. So like one of the reasons that we're talking about like is that all of this stuff could be significant about what happened to them. You know what I mean? This is So that's one of the reasons that we're going into so much of the nitty gritty is that like there's all these like train tickets. Some of them get used. Some of them don't get used. The number associated with them is their landline, but it's not anybody's name in the party. It's 2007. This is, um, was it MySpace time? Yeah. No. Was it? I don't know. Maybe it's Jason Roberts and he's trying to <laughs> cruise around <laughs> Australia looking for some booty. So on the 14th, Mrs. French, she was a lady who was buying some of the dogs slash puppies from the family. She came to get them. So she had actually been in correspondence with them for a while because she couldn't get the puppies right away. She needed to like wait like a month for whatever reason. So she comes over to the house finally. They've been corresponding via email for a while. And the first thing she noticed was that the house was in no shape to move. Um, There was furniture everywhere. Like nothing looked packed at all. And the, the reason that she came when she did was they kind of pressured her like this is going to be the last day that we're in town so you have to come get the dogs when she got there she was just like why are you guys pressuring me you you don't even look ready to go like what the heck so this mrs french lady had been corresponding with them for a while and kind of wanted to hang out there to see you know what the deal was i guess and that's when Chantel kind of started acting like she wanted to get rid of her and so she kind of just came up with an excuse saying you know like oh well i gotta go my daughter's sick And she's like, oh, where's your daughter? And she was like, oh, well, she's hanging out in the caravan back in the backyard with my roommate. And she's like, your daughter's hanging out in a car? Like, what? Like, that didn't make sense. And then she was like, oh, hold on a minute. And she went to another room, not in the direction of the backyard, and then came back into the room and was all anxious and saying, oh, I might have to take my daughter to the hospital. And she was like, you did not just go check on your daughter. Like, your your daughter is not where you said that she is, you know? So then she was just, she was like acting really anxious. And she's like, you got to go, you got to go. And I guess she was in such a hurry to leave that the woman actually pay, forgot to pay her or just didn't pay her for the rest of the dogs, I guess. Like she had only given like a down payment. So as she was like on her way back to Perth, where she came from, she actually called Chantel and was like, dude, I didn't give you all the money. And Chantal was like, uh, call, yeah, yeah, we'll arrange something. We'll arrange something. Uh, call me back tomorrow, whatever. And so... Mrs. French calls her the next day and Chantal never answers ever again. Oh, shit. Yeah, so I think that 
this woman was like the last person to have any kind of interaction with Chantel. She did it. (laughs) So getting back to all the train ticket buying and all that, the coronial inquest deduces, quote, in the end, this evidence leads to at least two reasonable inferences. One inference is that it is possible that Simon was still alive on July 16th, 2007. The second is that Simon or Tony, but probably Tony, traveled on the train to Calgary that morning and that a male associate of his, probably Simon, traveled to Northcliffe on that same day. On July 16th, 2007, Mr. and Mrs. Crouch went to the property to attend to the cattle. They had not seen any of the group for a few days by that stage. Mr. Crouch noticed an envelope on the back door of the house, so he went to the door and opened the envelope. In the envelope was a note to Mr. and Mrs. Couch from Chantel, Simon, Tony, and Leela, saying that they had, quote, left suddenly due to the lack of sleep created by the EMF. They said that they had moved to Brazil and could not take most of their furniture with them. Whatever was left was Mr. and Mrs. Crouch's to do with as they wished. They apologized for leaving so quickly. Because moving to Brazil is the simplest way to escape a little EMF, you know. (laughs) Yeah. In Tony's caravan was a considerate note from Tony to Mr. and Mrs. Couch in which he reiterated that they were welcome to all of the items he had left behind in the caravan and described the condition of the caravan and how necessary repairs could be effected. The house and and the caravan were in spotless condition. In the house, all of the food except for a bucket of rice and all personal items, including clothing, had been removed. However, all the electrical appliances remained, including a large plasma TV, Xboxes, a DVD player, scores of DVDs, two computers, clock radios, lamps, and oil heaters in every room. The fridge door was left open with the inside clean and empty. All the furniture had been left behind, including mattresses on the beds, but there were no sheets or towels. Also on July 16, 2007, Joseph Popich received a package through Australia Post from Tony containing the power of attorney forms, Tony's bank statements, and super... What did you say? Super new... Is it an annuation? Yeah, yeah. Super annuation policy details. Including... I don't know what that is. It just looks like that. <laughs> It does look like that. A-N-N-U-A is the prefix for once a year, like like anniversary, like once a year. So it's something with that. So renewing your policy? Maybe. Anyways. Also included was a handwritten note from Tony in which he outlined the bank account in superannuation policy details and apologized for being a crap brother and, jo- and thanked Joseph for all his help. There's been no confirmed evidence of contact or sighting of any member of the group since this last date. In October 2007, Chantel's father, James McDougall, reported to police in Victoria that Chantel and Leela were missing and that he had serious concerns for their welfare. This information passed along to Western Australian police. Tony's brother, Joseph Popich, contacted 
the Western Australian police in early November 2007 to report that Tony was missing. In the years that followed, it emerged that Simon Cadwell was, in fact, Gary Felton, an illegal immigrant who had stolen his pseudonym for a, from a former associate in Britain. We found out that he had conned people out of all their money and plagiarized the stuff he had written in his books. He was just a con man, a Mrs. McDougall said. The book Servers of the Divine Plan had sold just 4,000 copies when it was withdrawn from sale by the owner of esoteric publishing, Brett Mitchell, following the family's disappearance. Chantel's parents traveled all over Australia posting flyers with Chantel and Leela's photographs in the search for their lost loved ones, but their pleas for information remain unanswered. Other weird things. Suicides associated with the Truth Fellowship occurred. A Canadian couple, Kirk Helgeson and Alexander Fominoff, both in their 20s, uh, while holidaying in Nanup in the southwest western Australia to meet Mr. Cadwell because they were devoted to his philosophical teachings. So they must have like met him online and came all the way out there. However, Fominoff took his life uh, back in Canada on July 24th, 2007, one week after the four went missing. A month later on August 26th, Helgeson and another woman, Christina Arnett, died in a drug overdose, which I'm assuming was intentional, in Massachusetts in the U.S., all three of them were known like disciples or followers the of Fellowship. the Truth Fellowship. Yeah. So it's a little weird that like, you know, it, it, that kind of points to potentially the four of them committing suicide. Like a pact or something? Like some kind of, yeah. Like, well, if you listen to his what his book is saying, the only way to get to that fifth dimension Well, it's not is, committing suicide. It's like creating life to get to the fifth dimension but you have to die to to ascend yeah so but but so there is no such thing in his mind as committing suicide or completing suicide because really you're just going to the next plane so what are you saying you don't you die, don't die. You're physically yeah. physically your body dies but your soul goes somewhere vibrates on to the fifth dimension Mentioned by our listener, Katrina, and also Case File, there is another weird coincidence. So a plane from Australia literally ran off the runway and smashed into a petroleum station upon arrival in Brazil, and it just completely fireballed up and just burnt everything around the same time they would have been heading to Brazil. Bodies were obviously, like, totally unrecognizable so everyone and died everything burnt up Holy and shit. everybody died so there's no way to see because they know for a fact that the names were not on the manifest like but that that doesn't account for the fact that they could have had fake visas or fake passports yeah i wonder what the what the name was on that passport that he screwed away with when well the, that was when Leela's, the were that there. was leela's passport but i wonder if it actually said leela on it, oh. or if it was like you know if they had fake names yeah but a lot of people point that that's maybe not like the most credible theory because you can also maybe account for everybody on the plane. I don't know if the police have ever really done that, but 
I mean, who's to say that four of those passports are not really who they say they were and they were those four people, you know? That just happens to be very fucking strange, right? It's just very weird that this Brazil-bound Australian plane just fireballs, basically, everything's wrecked right around the time that they could have been going there. Fifth dimension, here you come. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> So there was also a state of interest when a girl in Rome was found who looked similar to her, although it wasn't her. She ended up being German. I think they said she was a German autistic girl. So again, I I just love the way that our, our listener Katrina spoke in her email. So she said, anyway, there's so much more to this case that just sits as well in my soul as footy shorts full of fire ants. And you know what? We agree. <laughs> <laughs> no one wants that. So what do you think? Do you think it was murder or a need to disappear? Well, I don't know. This guy was sketchy as fuck from the start. Stealing identities, you know, just traveling around when, when you know, people were catching on to his shit. Um. But do you think he killed them? Do you think they're all dead? Do you think he killed some of them? And it seems like when I was watching a YouTube segment, like a news segment on this, a lot of the comments, the the popular theory, I would say, in the YouTube comments was that, like, Cadwell killed them all, assumed a new identity, and ran off. But what's weird, though, is that none of the money was touched. Right. So there was like, that's what I was saying. They like, there was deposits and there were some withdrawals, but for the most part, it was mostly just deposits. And so the biggest deposit, which is the $4,000 from the car made like the day before they went missing, that was never touched. And it's never been touched in the over decade since it's happened. I'm wondering if they actually didn't crash in that plane. You know, I know. That's what I was thinking too, because I'm like, if they wanted to disappear, it would be really weird that they didn't access that money. Yeah. But and this then guy I could doesn't have a see... history. He doesn't have a history of being violent either. No. He's just a weird computer warrior. But like, are there any other options other than, I mean, it, it doesn't, I don't think they, I don't know. I really don't know. Because you would need money in order to get the fake passports. Although I didn't talk about this, but I believe that Tony received upwards of like 20 to $25,000 from his parents right before the disappearance to pay off some debt kind of stuff. There was a lot of like exchanging of monies between him and his family back and forth. And so I wonder if maybe that was enough money and like leaving the other money in checking accounts and saving accounts would just maybe th throw, be be throw the cent off. Yeah, right. yeah. So that's a pretty elaborate. I know. I mean, because he was already kind of off the grid, so it's not like he had to do anything that drastic to not be found, but I don't know. Yeah. I wonder if they, like, went through, like, the, re you know, the register of all the passengers on the plane. I'm sure they did, but, like, if they made sure all those people were actual, actual people, I don't know. I think they died in the plane. Wow. A lot of people also theorize that they've died somewhere in the bush and that's why we haven't found their bodies is because that shit is hard to 
navigate. If they made it that far, then I could see that being absolutely a possibility. I don't even know. Or if they made it that far, maybe they're in the jungle somewhere having the time of their life. and That's what I hope. You know, doing whatever you do in the jungle in Brazil. Oh, you're talking about Brazil. I was talking about the bush in Australia, like the outback. Yeah. Either one. But, I mean, there is no record of those people with those names traveling to Brazil. So that's why they believe that they never made it to Brazil. But who, But that's not to say that, you know, fake passports weren't bought. Yeah, I mean, but maybe. But 2007, that would be, I feel like hard. I mean, I don't know how good counterfeit passports are. But I feel like that would be hard in 2007 to travel with that kind of stuff. No, they've been Post forging 9/11. documents forever. Yeah. Maybe but this some is of one, you guys out so, there might know. So so let us know. Um, or maybe just let the authorities know. Sometimes when we cover these mystery cases, like they're so old that we're just like, yeah, there's no way that it's going to get solved. But this one's not that old. And this was kind of an internet cult. It wouldn't necessarily... I mean, it's been, it's been like 14 years since they disappeared, almost to the day. And... You know, it doesn't seem like he's had any internet activity or anything like that. But because this is such a modern cult and such a modern crime or disappearance, it does seem like maybe if you give it a little more time that there could be some developments, you know? True. Yeah. This guy was such an internet freak, you know? But it's but people, how could he stay away for 14 yeah, you, years, you, Like that, Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say is, like, they wouldn't lay low. They would. They, they, they need to. They're narcissists. So you do know, you like, think that... They're no longer. I think they're no longer. Yeah. On this third dimensional prison planet that so you we think all are they, in. Okay. All right. If you or someone you know has any information about the whereabouts of Leela, Chantel, Tony, or even the other dude that nobody likes, Gary Felton, you can call Crime Stoppers at 1 800 333 000 which I know in the United States, that's not enough numbers. I'm pretty sure that's just an Australian number. Or you can visit the crimestoppers.com.au website to report your tip there. Thanks for listening. You can join our Facebook group, True Crime Dumpster. You can follow us on Twitter at TC Dumpster and on Instagram at True Crime Dumpster. You can email us at truecrimedumpster at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, truecrimedumpster.com. Listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, YouTube, and many other platforms. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about our podcast. Every review, rating, and referral helps us to get to a larger audience. Also, with summer approaching, we're going to be putting out more episodes and have a little more time to devote to the podcast. And hopefully we'll get our Patreon back up and running, so just keep your eyes peeled. So we'll see you next time where we keep talking out the trash. Bye-bye. Bye.